Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. Or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us, and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. Typically, newer equipment that is anywhere from a half a million to uh, you know a million and a half or two million dollars, you know, you you want to run that machine, you know, minimum a hundred hours a week. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Today, we're discussing how to run a profitable, high-volume machining business. Our guest is Harry Amy, co-owner and COO of American Turn Products in Erie, Pennsylvania. Harry and his brother Scott believe it's important to invest heavily in high-end turning equipment, such as index multi-spindles and hydrament transfer machines for large volumes. They also make sure to balance their high-volume work with smaller-run jobs using CNC Swiss and turning centers. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. We are thrilled to have Harry Amy of American Turn Products in Erie, Pennsylvania on the show today. I've been asking Harry to be on the show for a little while. And finally, he has agreed to. He is one of uh, our best customers, um, often, uh, you know, working with him to sell equipment as well as um, buy equipment. And um, just really happy to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. So, okay, let's let's just get started with the basics. What is American Turn Products, ATP? What do you, what do you guys focus on? And then uh, give me a little history of the company. Well, we, we focus on primarily complex machining, and, and we like higher volume machining. Um, that's kind of really where our sweet spot is. Now, I, I say higher volume. You know, it could mean a component. You know, a lot of times we might ship anywhere from, you know, 300,000 pieces a week on something. But we will also do the smaller volume stuff. Um, we do do prototypes for people. We recognize in um, in our business and in the uh, the markets that we serve that it's important to be able to do a good job with prototypes because that's a lot of times how you end up getting the high volume stuff. Interesting. Has the has the low volume stuff grown in recent times? 
Well, the the low vo- we've always done some low volume stuff and low volume. I mean, I, I think probably, you know, maybe a, the smallest order we might do might be 100 pieces or or something like that. But um, we do do smaller volume orders. And, uh, you know, again, we, we have the ability to do those prototypes if necessary. So what would it be a prototype for for an automotive part? It could be automotive. It could be uh, agricultural, uh, mining. It, you know, it, it could be any of those particular markets. So, anytime that you want to get in a race at the starting line of, of a lot of the stuff that we do, it that starts with the prototypes, and then it moves into a little bit bigger of an order, and then you know, once you get over those hurdles, the last couple of hurdles is getting getting that uh, award for those higher volume orders. I see. So that is generally the way that the suppliers compete um, to get to get the work right typically it is yes now you asked me a little bit of history on the uh, on our business yeah. our company yeah. back in the uh, 1950s my grandfather who was Harry Amy started the business and it was a you know small company at that time no more than three to five people and um, now what year what year are we talking about I'm, I'm th- Thinking that you know it was around the 1954-1955 range. Okay. And uh, and then my father went to work for his father. What kind of machines were they running? They were running Brown and Sharps at that time. Okay. And uh, and then they moved into Acme Gridley's. Um, you know, both bar and chucker machines, and a variety of secondary operations. Who were they making parts for? Automotive as well. Uh, no, they weren't. They were they were doing thing. They were doing hydraulic components for customers and primarily in the Youngstown and Cleveland area. And then um, when my father came to work for his father, uh, my dad was more of the visionary person. He uh, really saw the need to expand into other markets. And so I want to say more of like the mid uh, mid seventies. Uh, we started doing some higher volume stuff for General Electric Home and Laundry. Hmm. And then we moved into uh, automotive parts for TRW. And, um, you know, that any time that we we don't have typically a lot of customers, uh, but what we do a great job with, once we get in and do, do work for someone, we expand with them. And uh, so we actually, you know, mine you know, we, we mine with that particular customer, almost like a mining type uh, approach with them where we, we start doing a lot of different things for them. And that was true then and it's true now the same? I, I believe it is, yes. Does that make uh, you nervous? Well, <laughs> I, I say, you know, we don't have any particular customer or market that represents more than uh, 25% of what we do. So we're not you know, held hostage by anybody, which is a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you typically, when you get into those situations, it can get very scary. You know, it's always enticing to do the, the larger volume, high volume, uh, components. But when you get into them, then they're, they're really weighted. Your business gets geared around that. And then something bad happens with that. And I've seen it in our, in our industry. So, but anyway, um, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, we were the, known as the Amy Corporation, and uh, in 1984, we started American Turned Products in Erie, Pennsylvania, 
and uh, we closed the Amy Corporation down in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in that time frame, we started a, a plant in El Paso, Texas in 1990. I lived there for five years, and that was all automotive, what we did down in El Paso. How old were you when you went to El Paso? I was 26. You were 26. Mm-hmm. All right, so a little bit about you. Uh, so you went to, uh, where did you go? Uh, Ohio State? I went to the Ohio State University. Went there, uh, came uh, came back. Uh, when I went down to El Paso in 1990, I came back to Erie as our quality manager. And in 1999, I went to uh, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland and got my MBA uh, in a two-year program, which was very rewarding. Did you start the shop in El Paso? I, I did start the shop in El Paso, but we already had business and we already had the business tooled on Davenport machines. Um, and so I was um, recently married at the time and, um, you know, came home and told my uh, <laughs> my wife at the time uh, we hadn't been married yet. But I told her, I said, uh Hey, we've got, I've got this opportunity in El Paso, Texas. And she goes, oh, great. I love Dallas. <laughs> I said, you know, I said, uh, Dallas is about a 14-hour drive from El Paso. It's a really big state. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we uh, we decided to do that. And then it was a, uh, a very good decision. I, I grew so much from it. But just even the startup of hiring the people, training the people, putting the systems in place, so you you basically built it from the ground up. There really wasn't there wasn't anything there yet. There was nothing there. Wow, nothing. And at that time, we were doing um, seatbelt pins for uh, uh, seatbelt uh, components. So they were a special shaft, and um, we were shipping on these shafts roughly close to about four hundred thousand of them a week, and. Um, we were doing them for a variety of seatbelt manufacturers who had plants set up in uh, in Mexico, and at that time they were called maquiladoras. Uh, they're you know, which is another term for twin plants. So they would they would receive things in our customers would in the U.S. ship up to their assembly plants, assemble them into a seatbelt system, and then ship them back. Okay. And uh, the parts were heavy, so that's. They wanted a satellite plant, uh, a manufacturer in that location down there. And there really wasn't any manufacturers, uh, you know, machining companies that could do what we did down in El Paso at that time. So how did it, how did something like this happen? Was your, your father was talking to somebody and or to your customers and then they said, we need this. And then, then you guys put your heads together and you were like... Why don't we start a shop in El Paso? At that time, um, our business with some of these players wasn't uh, as big as what it, you know, what we w- would have wanted, and um, we were making these all on Davenport multi-spindle uh, machines. One of the fastest machines around. It is. It's quick, and so um, I did a crash course on Davenports uh, for about uh, four to six months with. Uh, some of our folks up here in Erie who did an outstanding job training me. And um, uh, we went down there and we started with uh, with two machines. 
And we actually sold the business in 2006. Um, and at that time, I think we had about 35 Davenport. So we grew pretty rapidly over the period. And who, who did you sell it to? Uh, I, I sold it. We sold the company to, uh, to John Haby. All right. Also former interviewee. So what did it feel like as a 26-year-old going, I mean, you'd lived in Ohio and Pennsylvania all your life and uh, going to Texas to start a shop all on your own. That must have been a bit scary. Um, it must have, must have been really exciting. I think at, at the time I was, uh, you know, you're, you're young and, um, you know, you're fresh out of college and everybody that, you know, is in college is, uh, is very hungry. And at that time I was, I was hungry and I, I was someone that didn't take no for an answer. And so, you know, there was a lot of long days and nights working on getting jobs to run and to run right. And, um, and working with people, I, I got very fortunate. We found some folks in El Paso, um, that had run Davenports, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And some of these, there was a small Davenport shop in, in El Paso that, that was not doing automotive work. And they decided to, uh, to come to work for us, a couple of them. And we started with two employees. And then as we started to grow, there was um, people that were running Davenports, guys from El Paso that moved to Los Angeles that heard that there was a, you know, a what I would call a progressive Davenport shop in El Paso. And then they moved back. And they moved back. Interesting. So, were, these Mex were most of them Mexican? Uh, they were all Hispanic. Okay. Some of the, uh, the folks that, uh, that we hired were um, working for companies out in L.A., and they were PMPA members, which were very active in the Precision Machine Parts Association. Mm -hmm. And so we... Um, uh, some of them work for member companies in uh, Alger mm -hmm. Manufacturing. We hired, I think, three or four guys from there. And uh, but again, you know, we got really fortunate. I, I was very fortunate to work with uh, some great people, and uh, the chemistry was there, and the, the company was very successful there. Okay, so then, uh, how many years were you down there? Uh, well, the plant was there for sixteen years. I lived there for about five years. Okay. Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. And then what made you want to move back? You were just, you were just tired of Texas? No, uh, actually, I, I, I love the area. Um, you know, as the older I get, I, I don't, you know, Erie is, uh, is the snow belt capital of the world. So, um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the, uh, the nice warm weather down there, but, um, taking a step back and looking at my future with our business and where things were going, the plant was set up as though it was a department down there. So, you know, a lot of our, you know, sourcing decisions and those type of things were being made, uh, you know, up in Erie. So I see to learn more about the business 
and a variety of everything that we do, I thought it was good for my development to come back. I see. Okay. And your brother, he also works in the business. So did he go into the business before you? We, we came into the business. I came into the business a little bit uh, earlier than what Scott did, but about the same time. Okay. But he's older than you? Scott is uh, is three years older than me, and um, he is more on the sales side of things in the company, and I'm more on the operation side of things. Okay. And what was it like working with your dad? I got to spend a little bit of time with him, just a couple of times, and I always thought he was really smart um, and funny, funny guy. Uh, what was it like? Well, my dad was... Um, was the great visionary of the business. And he was always thinking ahead on things that, that we should be doing. And he wasn't afraid to try those things. And, uh, you know, from, you know, facilities to people development, you know, being progressive, being a leader in the industry. He, he was so involved with the PMPA um, and the relationships that, that he made there and being able to um, collaborate with people and benchmark with people in the association was very important for him. You know, a lot of times I would, uh, it'd be a Saturday or Sunday and I would call my parents home and my mom would say, well, he's at work. And I'd say, oh, and, and I'd, I'd touch base with him and he would be spending all day going through the PMPA benchmarking report that just came out. Aye, aye, aye. It's an annual report. <laughs> I was thinking, man, man, are we in trouble come Monday? <laughs> so anyway, but uh, he, he was a very visionary guy. Was he the one that took you guys out of the Acme business? He, he was. In fact, uh, interesting story about that. I remember we held an auction in Ohio at our, we had a building there that was empty. When was this? This was, I believe in about 2002. Okay. And so we, we were running at one time we had about 30 Acme's and we had a variety of them. I mean, we had nine sixteenths to, you know, three quarter, one inch, inch and a quarter machines, inch and five eighths, mm -hmm. Uh, we had HEs, we had uh, two inch, two and five eights, we had chuckers. It might have even been more than 30. I don't remember the exact number. Okay. But for where we were going in the markets that we were serving, the machines couldn't do what the technology was out there at that time. And things, we saw how things were evolving with, uh, you know, index multi spindle machines, Schutas, Gildemeister. Euro turns, et cetera. So, and, and the big deal with, with the Acme's back then was getting parts for, them. <laughs> you know, so I'm sure you can, I, you, I know you can relate to this. So thank, thank God, thank God that that's not our business getting parts for Acme's. You know, a, another big piece of that is, you know, those machines were based on, you know, using form tools. Mm -hmm. And even though you could put servo drives on them and, and try to do CNC things, it, it was nowhere near what the technology, you know, is today or what it was even back then. So we, um, my dad decided, hey, we're going to get rid of all of our Acme's. We're going to have an option. What did you and, and your brother say? Were you, did we kind of scratched our head at it. We were, we didn't know if that was the right decision or not. Because it seemed and, like sort of a, 
snap judgment? It wasn't kind of like gradual, like. I want to say, in fact, 2003 might have, I think it was more of like in 97, 98 timeframe. You know, this is going back 20 years. Okay. But anyway, um, we thought it was a little bit snap judgment. But, uh, and, you know, and it heavily, you know, you're already heavily capitalized organization as it is. And now we're going to get rid of everything that's fully depreciated, right? (laughs) And we're going to go out and we're going to have to spend more money. So a lot of money. We decided to do the auction. And um, I remember the day of the auction, I could not attend it. I was actually down in El Paso at our plant down there. And I remember getting a call from one of our employees who was a long time. Acme setup maintenance guy who went to the auction. He called me up and he went, Harry, your dad just gave those machines away. And I want to say he gave them away. I think the lowest he got for the cheapest one he sold was, I think, for $25,000. No, your dad, your, your dad was shrewd to sell them then. He probably, he probably got a hundred grand for some of them. Oh yeah. And, and there was some that went even for more than that. I mean, they were in, in very good condition. So, you know, if you would have turned the clock back when we did that five years in advance, people weren't getting, you know, 5,000 for, you couldn't give them away, you know? So in hindsight, we kind of thought at the time that we were doing the, the, uh, the sale of those in the auction, that it was a, it was a terrible decision. We didn't get any money for them. That's what you and Scott thought. That's what we thought. But at the, now that I look back on it, it was a very good decision. And it just, it, you know, again, going back to what you asked me about him, you know, he was quite the visionary guy. He saw the future of the industry and where it was going and uh, and made a, a, a tough decision, you know, that he was going to, you know, this is what he was going to do. And so that's what we did. Yeah. Which basically transformed everything. So, so then right after that, did you, you just called up Index and... Well, we, you know, at that time, um, you know, we were predominantly, you know, we had index machines, but we also had Shuta's, Euroturn, Gildemeister, all multi-spindle CNC. Oh, you already had that back then, too. We did, yes. You know, okay. we had the, the Shuta PC uh, 32 machines. And, uh, you know, so we were, uh, you know, kind of uh, working with all those folks on who we were going to partner with long-term. And so we, we've, yeah, we've always still kept the door open with all those folks, uh, but we're pri- primarily a, uh, an index multi-spindle screw machine company, full CNC. Yeah. And we run, you know, single spindle index machines. So, yeah, so that brings us up to, to now. You know, I, I obviously you have a respect for some of the other builders, but... Um, you're an index place. Why, why index? Well, I, I think, um, and, and it's not just index, uh, Hydromat is a very, very big, uh, supplier machine tool owner. What we are of the Hydromat machines. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we also are of Swiss machines, Torno citizen. Uh, but, um, you know, all of those folks, we want to be able to have our equipment serviced properly in North America. And that's very important to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, machine tools have issues and you need to have someone close by 
that can help you and continue to work with your people and train your people. Now, I will say we have sent our people have been overseas to both Index, Hydromat, and Tornos, and have received maintenance training, uh, program training, setup training, et cetera. But um, still having a player in your backyard and, and, you know, if you've ever been to some of their companies here in North America, um, there's it, it, as soon as you walk in, you know if they can service you or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've always, it, it seems most of the time you guys have had the philosophy of only buying new. Yeah, now we, we have bought used equipment, um, it, you know, but we... Um, uh, typically, when when we get into doing a uh, you know high volume program, and uh, and it's a complex component, doing it with older technology that's not reliable can get you into a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. And you know when you're dancing with with uh, some of the customers that we do, you, you just you, you want to make sure you're going to do a great job for them. Right. I mean, what kind of job? requires an index like how much do you maybe you can't tell me this i don't know I, I, like how much how much does a an index user have to get for a piece to to just finance a machine like that yeah you you know it just it depends a lot of times what you can do is is you look at what your current book of business is and maybe you've got a new component that you're you're um you're quoting and um, you look at what the capacity of that of that asset could be by maybe you know you run some of your current work on it and some of that new work and you want to full, fully utilize a machine. Typically, newer equipment that is you know anywhere from a half a million to uh, you know a million and a half or two million dollars. You know you you want to run that machine you know minimum a hundred hours a week. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, you're not going to get your money's worth. You will not. You know, we've we've noticed somewhat in the United States. Uh, the mo- I mean, yeah, obviously people are still buying multi-spindles, but it seems like sort of Swiss um, turning centers. It's become more popular to some extent. Is it is it harder to get the right multi-spindle jobs? Um, for a U.S. company than it was a few years ago. I mean, you you're buying some new indexes, but you've also I, I, I you've you've bought some of the turning centers as well lately, right? Correct. You know, typically you want to invest in the the multi spindle or the hydromat with a higher volume complex component. And a lot of times, when you take a step back, you know, some of those components can be made on either machine. And you have to take a, you know, another step back and say, okay, well, which, which one's going to yield me more parts at the end of the day? And what machine is going to be able to hold these tolerances that we need to hold and typically with exotic materials. So that's kind of how you gear your decision. Now we do service those markets where we have those mid range orders of, you know, and I mentioned this earlier, whether it's a prototype, a hundred pieces, you know, 250, 500, 1,000 pieces, you know, those type orders, you know, we're, we're, we've moved into the, um, 
you know, multi-axis, either a Swiss machine or a lathe. Right. Well, so like what kind of work are you, you have some C200s. What, what kind of work would that be? The index, index lathe. Is that, is that for the prototypes? It, it can be, um, you know, it's, it's more for those mid range orders that we want to, uh, to produce. And, you know, another thing about those machines is typically, you know, we're able to set them up anywhere from two hours to no more than eight to 10 hours on a job. Wow. And that's the beauty of that. How long does it take to set up a MS machine? Well, it depends upon what you're setting up and, you know, what you were running and what you're going to, you know, typically, uh, multi-spindle index machine at a minimum is probably going to be 10 hours. And, um, you know, and there's some cases where we can do it faster. Again, it just depends upon what you're, you're going to. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a, you know, a semi-complex part, you're probably into 10 to 15 hours of setup time. And, you know, Hyder Mat is a totally different yeah. ballgame when it comes to setups. So, you know, certainly the, the index machines are much more flexible than what the Hyder Mats are. Mm-hmm. And do you think that you're going to smaller diameters now than larger ones? Or is it just kind of cyclical? You know, we uh, typically run, I, I, you know, the smallest diameters we might run are maybe 200 thousandths of, uh, of an inch in diameter is the smallest we go to. Um, and we go all the way up to maybe some, in some cases, up to three inches in diameter. So, you know, but, we... But is, is like... Kind of a wide range, but uh, go ahead. Well, is like under an inch, is that or under 20 millimeters, is that these days, like what the most parts are done on, or? I think it's probably more hovers around that 20 to, you know, 32, 32, you know, a 32 millimeter machine is still a very popular machine in our industry. Yeah. It's right in that range where you can do a lot of stuff. Absolutely. Well, just a few other questions. Uh, what What is your favorite thing about the machining business and working in it. I'm still always amazed about taking it, you know, a piece of raw material, putting it in a machine and being able to have it make something so close tolerance mm-hmm. and, and to be able to, to, you know, spit something out in five to 10 seconds has always amazed me. And, um, also, just the the collaboration in the industry is phenomenal. Um, you know, it's uh, that's interesting. It, it it's so exciting to get up and come to work every day. It's very energizing. Well, you're very you're very lucky. I am. I'm very fortunate. Absolutely. What are you What are you most trying to to improve upon, uh, both you know professionally with the company and personally? Well, I, I think with our organization, um, we always have to have that vision of where we're going. And, um, you know, strategically, where, where are we headed, you know, from here? Uh, right. That's always got to be out there. You know, we always got to keep an eye on what we're doing and where we're going. And, you know, something that's ultra important in this business is who you do the work for. You know, there, there's always, I've always heard so many horror stories about, you know, who you're doing your work for. So I think that's very, very important to us, having that strategic plan. And personally, uh, you know, my philosophy is is getting people around me 
the tools that they need to be effective in their jobs, Mm -hmm. which as a result is going to make our company great. Um, And that goes from training to good machine tools to good facilities, um, all those things. And and have you been able to find good people easily? You know, it's always a challenge. You know, is it hard to find people in Erie, Pennsylvania? Sure. It's hard to find people wherever you're going. Sure, sure. In North America, I mean, especially in this business, um, you know, there's things that, you know, we're doing uh, with uh, uh, collaborating with other manufacturers and, uh, you know, training people in the basic things of blueprint rating, you know, uh, gauge uh, uh, metrology to, you know, uh, basic machining skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing those things. Um, there's a potential for a community college, which we don't have one here in Erie County, uh, where a lot of other uh, locations do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's, I don't want to say a negative, but an opportunity for improvement for Erie County. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay. No, thank you. Have a good day.